I know you can't listen to all of our episodes, but these are ones you won't want to miss. This is a best of episode, and you'll find links to the full conversations in the show notes. First up is clips from a conversation I had with Elizabeth Sharp McKetta. She's an author and an editor who also teaches editing and writing. And her book, Edit Your Life, is one of the best books I've read this year by far. And she posed a simple question. What if you took the principles of editing, editing a book, for example, and applied them to your life, starting with the essence of what does this book or what does this life want to become? She also poses another question, which I think is very relevant and should think about next year. What's the one brave thing you could do, whether it's this year, this week, or today? So this idea of editing with, with a book ends when the book is done, whereas, of course, with a life. Our lives are open books and it's never done until the life is over. So that principle of identifying in a life, what is this trying to be? And often with a life, I think it's an easy way to break it down is what gives me energy, what innately feels good. And then another side of that, that in both books and life that we can, that we'll probably circle back to is the question of what do I want to leave behind? that a life is filled with so many things from cooking soups to vacuuming to remembering people's birthdays to parenting to trying to leave something behind like your podcast or my books that it feels like the the question of where is the energy on a day-to-day basis how do we lean toward that and away from things that take it away and what are the things that we really want to look back on and feel like we've we've given so that they can outlast us like those questions i think are really good editing questions so so when i think about editing a life i think about the same editing questions we'll ask about a book, which are ultimately, what is this now? What is this trying to be? What works in its quest to try to be that? And what is still needed to get it there? And I think those questions apply really nicely to lives. So a few things that I think are, are interesting about the, the brave thing. And I think the main one is just that as humans, we are geared toward growth and change and, and seasons. And that we don't, however much we might want it to, we don't live in a world that stays still and we don't live in a body that stays still. And when we fight change, we often make a whole lot of trouble for ourselves. And that's not useful. And I think that when we do a brave thing, we embrace the big or small discomfort that comes with stepping out of our comfort zone. For me, a brave thing, one of the bravest things I did recently where I just felt, oh, you know, exhausted, but so proud of myself was um, I took a sailing lesson. I got like a very beginner sailing. It was so brave. I was so cold. I fell out of the boat like 50 times, but it was, you know, my, I have a, my husband is an ocean guy and my son is a water guy through and through. And my daughter takes sailing lessons. And it just felt like I was going to be the weak link in the family if I didn't at least learn how to be competent enough on a boat. And it just felt like a way that I could grow to meet them and I could grow to make family adventure something that we can all do using that shared interest, even if it's not necessarily the interest that, even if it's not necessarily my first choice interest, hanging out with my family and doing interesting things is absolutely first choice life. So I think that that sort of going out of one comfort zone reminds us we can go out of another. And as I mean, anyone who has any sort of, I know that morning routines are something that a lot of a lot of people talk about and think about and that I've loved having different versions of. And I think often a good morning routine puts the brave thing front and center in the clean morning mind so that before we even are conscious, before we've even had a conversation or breakfast, 
we've done our exercises or we've written a page in our book or we've done the thing that feels brave, that feels like we could go days and lives without doing it, but but we want to do it. You know, it feels good to do. Our higher self wants to do that. So I think the brave thing is just a reminder that we can do other brave things and that um, we're never stuck and that we can always take a step, however big or small, towards something that feels important and like a first choice life or or thing to do. So the brave thing is just a good habit. So if you're going to be editing your life in the new year, it helps to be mindful. Who doesn't want to be more mindful in the year ahead? Ellen J. Langer, who is a professor in psychology at Harvard and was the first woman to be tenured in psychology at Harvard, joined us to talk about her new book, The Mindful Body, and how active noticing can help you in many ways, including in bringing a sense of playfulness to what we do. It's been great fun. For me, I wasn't uh, limited by rules because I didn't know what the rules were. I didn't even know there were rules. I just did it. And so it was a mindful adventure. Anything can be engaged that way. You know, if you're going to cook and stick religiously to the recipe, it's not nearly as much fun as, oh my gosh, I don't have any sugar. That means I can't make it or what can I substitute it with? I don't have any cream. Should I use yogurt? Things that look like it. You don't have to be a genius in the kitchen. And part of it is just to go back to the way you and I claim to be, that you have to be lighthearted. You have to, you know, you should take what you do seriously, but not take yourselves too seriously. You know, so if I'm painting it, it, why should I expect it to be a masterpiece? And so if I put aside the mindless evaluation, it's much easier to do it. And if you're cooking, if you don't believe this is the last meal you're ever going to eat or that everybody is going to evaluate you based on how good the meal is, then it's easy to play around. I actually believe that we should bring that playfulness to everything that we do. And when you're at play, you're necessarily being mindful. So the thing that people have to realize is that not only is mindfulness good for you, this active noticing, but that it's easy. It's the essence of engagement and it's what you're doing when you're having a good time. It's not a practice. You know, so Joe, if you were gonna come visit me, you've never been to my house, you wouldn't have to practice it. You'd be curious and say, oh, what is she reading? Is that a new painting? Or I hope she throws that one away. Whatever you were noticing, you would notice. And that uh, the data have made clear that when you're being mindful, you light up. People see you as charismatic, more trustworthy. And not only that, but our mindfulness leaves its imprint on what we do. So if you're painting, doing anything, mindfully versus mindlessly, the mindful product will be superior. So since it's so good for you and it's easy, it's beyond me why anybody would hesitate to become more mindful. I have a quick question for you. Do you have a graduation coming up next year? I'm talking about your graduation, your graduation from the world of full-time work. If so, you've probably begun thinking about what's next. I hope you'll consider joining our next cohort of the Design Your New Life and Retirement Program which starts on January 25th. It's limited to 10 people, and it takes place over six sessions bi-weekly, starting on January 25th. You'll find a link in the show notes that'll give you all the information you need about the program and details on how to register. Keep in mind, it's limited to the first 10 who register. Hope to see you soon. One key thing, you obviously want to keep 
top of mind in planning for retirement is longevity. But we don't really know, of course, how long we'll live. But we should be prepared for the possibility that we might live to 100 or beyond. In the meantime, there are things we can learn from centenarians. William J. Cole, who recently retired as the New England news editor for the Associated Press, interviewed a number of experts and people 100 and older for his book, The Big 100, The New World of Superaging. And one thing that he learned that the superagers have in common is that they have learned how to handle stress. For me, what's really tops the list is that they handle toxic stress very well. And stress is the enemy of longevity. For the book, I, I had some really interesting conversations with Martin Picard, who is a, a biologist who is studying these things. And stress really affects us right down to the mitochondrial level in our cells. And, and it's amazing. It's one of the reasons why I made some changes to my own life to try and avoid it. And centenarians tend to do a very good job of handling stress. When you talk to them, as I have, you'll hear a lot. Don't sweat the small stuff. And people, they're, they're not easily aggravated. They just they have, either they're just psychologically wired to be chill, or they have learned some good things, good, good techniques to just sort of chill out. Other things, we mentioned positivity. There's a fascinating study recently, last few years out of Yale, that suggested having a positive attitude, not just in general being positive, but having specifically a positive attitude about our own aging specifically can add up to seven and a half years to our lifespan. And that's an incredible, more than what we gain by watching our cholesterol and exercising and, and our diet and all of that combined. And of course, people who are positive tend to do those things anyway, as, as well as not smoke, and they, they tend to go easy on the booze. That's a key thing. We also mentioned social isolation. People in the blue zones and many centenarians who are successful tend to not be languish in solitude, and that's key as well. So what words come to mind when you first think of getting older? What if you do live to 100 or beyond? What are some of the first words that come to mind? M.T. Connolly, who's a leading expert on elder justice and the author of the book, The Measure of Our Age, suggests three words that may not come immediately to mind. These three are creativity, curiosity, and meaning. Then there's aging as an opportunity or, or the late chapters of life as being a good opportunity for expanded creativity and curiosity. And I think this is, we really underestimate old age in this respect, I think, because there is so much we can do. And a recent article by David Brooks in The Atlantic focusing on Encore time focused on this as well. And I think that it's a spectacular time to do something new, to try something new to, that can also be tremendously enriching. Then there's the power of awe and transformation. And, you know, we life is and time is transformation. We're always changing. But also, if we focus on what we think is beautiful, what is transcendent, that's different for everybody. It might be a night sky for somebody. 
For one person, it might be a religious practice. For another person, it might be meditation or a trip to the Grand Canyon. It's different for everybody, but it's feeling like we're part of something bigger, like this great flow of humanity, but also the universe. Like we're the tiny little specks in the universe. And ironically, really embracing that and feeling that can change our existence. The sacred gift of time is the greatest upside of aging. A lot of people are deprived of that that gift historically and in our own time. And then I think the other way that I think about the upsides is that what I've tried to do both in my writing and in my own life is to shift the frame of satisfaction and living from external to internal. And that we need to really find in ourselves and strive to find meaning in the time we have. And there are several different ways of doing that. But that that really what we pay attention to is what shapes our existence. And so if we take more control over that and give more thought to how we spend our time, we're likelier to be happier people and often also healthier people. So getting older isn't what it used to be. In fact, people are thinking about it quite differently than we did in earlier generations. Maddie Dykdwald, who's a co-founder of the consulting firm AgeWave, joined us to talk about their new report, The New Age of Aging, and highlighted that they're finding people these days, as they get older, want to be more useful than youthful. You guys may remember Wilford Brimley in the movie Cocoon back in the 1980s. Do you remember that, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, anyway, he was playing an old guy living in a long-term care community. He was 49 years old when he made that. So we're beginning to see the whole aging thing shift, which is shifting the retirement study, the whole world of retirement. And by the way, in our most recent study, we learned that people used to think of 60 as being old. They don't anymore. Want to guess what age they think of as old today? I would think it's got to be in the 80s. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's 80. So we're seeing a real shift taking place in this whole concept of defining old and defining retirement. And let's be honest about it. Work and retirement, they used to be opposites. They're not anymore. People are thinking about working and retirement. And our studies showed just that fact. People are thinking about there's not just one size fits all for work and retirement, but in our study, we learned that 59% of retirees and pre-retirees, they want to work in retirement. Now, does that mean they want to work 40 or 60 hours a week? Absolutely not. It means that they're interested in combining work and play and leisure time activities in one lifetime, in their new chapter of life, which is what they refer to as retirement, by the way. They call retirement a whole new chapter in life. So it includes work, but not necessarily full-time work. I mean, when we polled people and we asked them, do you want to work? Most people wanted to either work flex time, part-time, or they wanted to cycle in and out of work. So maybe it's taking a consulting project for 
three or four months a year. I mean, it can take all different forms. The point is that people see retirement as a whole new chapter in life. And if they can work in retirement, they want to work. Now, interestingly, the one primary reason why people don't work in retirement is for a health reason. So it's really important that we stay healthy so that we can do all the things we want to do, including working. Uh, Let me give you an example of someone which is a little more extreme. I, I have a friend who was a dentist. He was in his late 50s. And he came up to me one day and he said, I want to talk to you about something, Maddie. I'm thinking about selling my dental practice. I was thinking to myself, he seems really young to be retiring. So I said to him, what? You're going to retire now? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. I want to sell my dental practice, go back to school and become a psychiatrist. I go, whoa, that is really different. And he goes, yeah, well, you know, I decided to be a dentist when I was 18 years old. I don't want to live with an 18-year-old's decision the rest of my life. So David is an example that's kind of extreme because he went in a whole new direction. But there are lots of people who are doing just that and different variations on the theme. Great example, though. So retirement presents both opportunities, but also challenges. But are older adults happier these days? What's going on with happiness? Yeah, there's been a lot of studies on this. Um, Laura Carstensen at Stanford did a study, and then we followed up in our newest study asking this very question. And it seems a little odd because you expect youth. That's where the action is. That's where the fun is. That's where everybody wants to be. But our study confirms that happiness and freedom soar in your 50s and 60s. They sort of level out after that, but they soar. And the good news, especially for someone like me who can get really anxious, is that anxiety really can plummet as you get older as well. So think about it. I mean, the hard work of raising a family and working full time, they begin to fade away a little bit in your 50s and 60s. And you get more opportunities to enjoy yourself and have a good time. And Just kind of relax. So 71% of those 65s told us in our study that the absolute best time of life is right now and into the future. So how are people thinking about leaving a legacy these days? Yeah, legacy is a big word. We did a study that was focused exclusively on legacy a long time ago, about five, six years ago. And We did include questions on legacy in this particular study. And what we learned is that 65% of people agree that leaving a legacy is important and that values and life lessons, let me repeat that, values and life lessons are far more important to pass on than financial assets in real estate. Now, let me just say, We know that financial assets and real estate are important to pass on. Everybody agrees on that. But this idea of passing on what really matters in life and what you stand for and having your family understand that is huge. I think Eric Erickson said it really well. He said, I am what survives me. And frankly, I think we agree that, you know, what we stand for in life are 
values, our morals, our ethics, these matter more than just our money. So I know what you're thinking. These studies are great. Listening to these authors and academics are great too. But what's retirement really like? And you might be wondering, what's it like day to day for someone who recently retired? We spoke with Brian Feutz, who shared his experiences in his first two years of retirement. And he recommends giving yourself the gift of time so that you can find your rhythm. You can read books about it. You can talk to people. You can do all that. But until you're there, you don't know what it's like. And so I, I had that fear and I had to fight my way through it. I liken that to parachute jumping. I've talked to people about this before, right? You can read about parachute jumping all day long. You can talk to people about it all day long. But until you step out of that airplane, you have no idea how exciting and thrilling it is to be on the other side of the retirement line. So fear was a big one there. And, and then what am I going to do is the second thing that, that I thought of is how do I fill my day? Looking back on it, I talk to people all day long these days about retirement, and, and one of their biggest concerns is, I'm bored, or, or how do I fill my day? What am I going to do? And so, so that was a big one, too. The third, probably the number one most important one, is do I have enough money to live the lifestyle that I want to live and make it all the way through until I die and not run out of money? Running out of money when you're in your 80s and 90s is a really bad idea because you can't go back to work, right? So I struggled with those, and my way of getting around it was to to learn as much as I possibly could. And I wrote it down. I started making notes and sharing it with my friends, talking with my wife, and all that sort of stuff. And I ended up writing about these things, and that's kind of how I got into writing. And I felt a sort of a pang of regret briefly, briefly. And then I woke up the next morning and I felt so free. I go, oh, this is great. I don't have to go to work. I don't have to worry about it. And I realized I had a good night's sleep. And the first few weeks or months was a little bit like those, it was like intoxication is probably the best word for it, right? I was so excited and I was running around talking to people and hiking and doing things with my wife. And I just enjoyed every single instant. I had a hard time going to sleep because I was having so much fun not working. And then over the course of the first year, I was deer in the headlights. It was, I have to get everything done I possibly could. This is my personal experience, Joe, not, not everyone else's, but, and I know it's different for everyone, but this first year was chaotic. I went hiking, I went kayaking, I went bicycle riding, I rebuilt bathrooms, I worked, went and visited friends and family, played with the kids, played with them in their professional, their, their professional, their jobs. I wasn't like playing with little kids, but. You know, we'd go downtown, we'd have dinners, we'd do all kinds of fun stuff. And then I think slowly, probably at some point during the second year, that level of intoxication sort of just blended into a rhythm. And I settled into a rhythm where I am right now. And each morning I get up, my hobby is writing. As you've mentioned before to me, I like to write. So in the mornings, I'll get up and write. And that involves interacting with people. It involves conference calls. It involves uh, comments, research, not just hands on the keyboard, but a lot of additional activities. Thanks for listening to this best of episode. You can find links to the full conversations in the show notes. And I hope these clips have given you some great ideas for next year, to the extent that it'll make next year your best year. Here are some ideas I'm taking forward from these conversations. From Elizabeth Sharp Maqueda, author of Edit Your Life, 
the process of applying editing to your life, it, I found very powerful. Her book is one of the best books by far I read in 2023. So much so that it's only the second book ever I can remember reading the hardcover and then buying the audiobook so I could listen to it again. One story she shared is that she used to have a label she had put on her for a cell phone, which had three words. Is it necessary? So I think that's a good lesson to take forward. Before making a decision, making a choice, is it necessary? From Ellen Langer with The Mindful Body, her research on counterclockwise, where they took, she took older adults, men in this case, put them in a facility where everything was going back to their primes. Something I've, when I read that study, did in my home gym. I have a lot of framed Sports Illustrated covers from the 70s and 80s. And I think from this conversation with her, the one thing that stood out to me is the practice of active noticing going into next year, being more intentional about being more mindful. Number three from Bill Cole, checking your attitude. How are your views and beliefs about aging? And how can you manage stress? better in the, in the new year, even if you are retired, because guess what? There's still stress. Number four from M.T. Connolly, the whole idea of bringing curiosity and creativity to your next chapters. Very powerful, very meaningful. What are you curious about? What do you want to learn in the year ahead? Number five from Maddie Dykwald, the concept of, do you really want to be more youthful or would you rather be more useful. That comment and her comments about legacy, rethinking, really, what will your legacy be? Goes beyond the financial. What are you going to leave to the next generation or generations? And number six from Ryan Futes, there is indeed life after work. However, it takes some time to find your rhythm, give yourself the grace to experiment and make the transition your own. We appreciate you listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. If you find these conversations useful, please rate and review. We would be appreciated. If you have suggestions or comments of how to improve the podcast, always interested in hearing from listeners. You can reach me by email at all lowercase joe, J-O-E, C, at retirementwisdom.com. That's joe c at retirementwisdom.com. 